And as you're doing that, let me give you a little bit of a review of last week because today's message runs right out of last week's message. Uh, we're talking about holiness. And uh, we were in Isaiah last week, so let me just go over some of the main things we talked about, and we'll get into this passage in, in uh, First Peter. First thing we looked at last week was a definition of what holiness is. And we need to understand what it is, especially as we talk about today and what we're going to talk about today. Uh, number one, we saw that holiness, to be holy is to be distinct, separate, in a class by oneself. Uh, we saw that in the definition of holiness is also to be holy is to be morally pure. And then as, as it relates to God, holiness is the central attribute that relates to every other attribute of God. Attribute is another word for the characteristic or, or uh, how you would describe who God is. Uh, righteous, holy, or not holy, righteous, pure, just, all of those things. And holiness is attributed to each one of those things. And we looked at the fact that why is holiness so important? And last week when we went through Isaiah, we looked at this statement. When we are confronted with the holiness of God, the greatness, the vastness, the, the splendor of who he is, the majesty of who he is, it reveals how we really are. And last week we looked at that word sinful. And let me just read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and we'll move through this really quickly. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, we're because it's very important we tie these two together. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord <clears throat> sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. <clears throat> And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, that picture that he describes in verse 1. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a live coal with which he had taken uh, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and we all have been in church for any time period, know what he says. Hear my, or, uh, yeah, I go, go back. Who, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah's response was what? Here am I. send me. And in thinking about God's holiness, the picture that Isaiah sees, because today we're going to look at, we're called to be holy. But why are we called to be holy? We have to know what that is. And in that picture, we saw the position of God. Lord, Adonai, meaning the sovereign one, in that description that Isaiah gives. He was, he was sitting on a throne signifying that God is in control of everything. He is high and lifted up, again, signifying the fact that he was above all gods, little g. There really is only one God, just so you know that. I don't think that statement means more. 
And then we saw that the, in the state that the train of his robe filled the temple. And if you remember the picture that history tells us about this, is that the kings of that time, as they would win their battles on the field, they would walk through the, the spoils. And when they got to the king, they would cut off a piece of his robe and they would sew it on their robe. And the bigger that train was, the more victorious that king was. So when Isaiah sees that this robe it fills the temple, it signifies or shows that this throne belongs to, to the one who is victorious over all things. The picture there. We saw the posture of the seraphim. Uh, their, their wings covered their face. Their, the response to God's glory and his holiness it, it, it was reverence. They couldn't look on him. That's how great he was, is. The two wings covered his feet in humility. Again, the feet was a picture of our creatureliness. In humility to who God is, we don't even compare. And with the two wings they flew, which was a response to God's glory and service. The proclamation was the word holy, holy, holy. And again, we looked at a little bit about those repetitions in the, in the Jewish language. Two was, man, you better pay attention. Three, <coughs> man, this is something different. And the perception of the prophet was this. Isaiah's response to the holiness of God was not, hey, I got it all figured out. I've been in ministry for 20 years. Send me out, was it? No, what was it? Whoa, what was me? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And we know that in that passage it says that, that Isaiah's sin was taken care of. And what was his response? After that, when God says, who, who am I going to send? Did Isaiah hesitate? No, he said, send me. Send me. And this morning we're going to be in this passage in 1 Peter. But let me give you some biblical, uh, the, what the Bible dictionary says about this word holiness. Because I think it's very important again. Uh, again, the word means to set aside, uh, called out by God for his specific purposes. In the Old Testament, what are some of the examples of that? Let me give them to you. I'm glad you asked. It's the, here are some ways the word holy is used. All right? The holy places in the Old Testament. Think about it. The tabernacle. The tabernacle was set aside so that they could have weddings and, and feasts and parties, was it? No. It was set aside for what? For one specific purpose. I mean, there were many things that went on, but it was for one specific purpose. It was in service to God. That would also be a reference to the temple, which came along later. It was called a holy place. Holy sacrifices and holy offerings uh, were given. They were offerings with a specific calling out. They were specifically used for a specific thing in purpose. And that specific thing is in service to the Lord. The priests, they were called holy priests, were they not? And their service was not to the small g God, was it? It was to the most high God, and they had a specific uh, purpose. The holy nation of Israel. Israel is not just some country that sits over there in that little piece of land there in the corner of the Mediterranean Ocean. The, the Israel was, in Genesis chapter 12, as, as God calls out Abraham, Israel was called, they were set apart, holy, for what? To represent God's glory on the earth 
and the future Christ, Messiah, who would come. And they still are to some extent, although God has sort of set them aside for the time being, and the church takes that role. A Nazarite, just in thinking of, of a Nazarite, they took a vow of holiness. Why? Because they had a specific purpose in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, another part of that definition is it's used to describe things or persons that are holy in the sense of being a set, aside, set apart for divine redemptive purposes. Here are some examples. The Holy Spirit. What's the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? It was the same in the Old Testament. He does what? When it comes to salvation, he's the one that does what? He regenerates his soul. All right? The, the picture there, uh, the Holy Spirit has a purpose, God's purposes. The Holy One of God. Who is the Holy One, capital O, capital yeah, O? Who would that be? Jesus. That's in Mark 1. The Holy Apostles. They had a specific purpose. They're called that in Ephesians chapter 3. In Luke 1, the Holy Prophets. In Luke 1, the Holy Covenant. In John 17, God as the Holy Father. The Holy Scriptures in Romans chapter 1. The saints. We're called holy. Not in a sense, although we are righteous, and we'll look at that in a minute, but we're set apart, we're, we're called out for God's purposes. The church, and if you were here several months ago, what's the word in the New Testament that's used to describe the church? What? Ecclesia. Ecclesia means what? Called out one. Holy, the holy church in Ephesians chapter 5 is what we're called. In 1 Peter, which we're going to look at this morning, God's people. 1 Thessalonians, the holy kiss of greeting. It had a specific purpose. In 1 Peter also, holiness as a characteristic of God. And I hope you get the picture of what that word means because we're going to look at this morning what we're called out to be. And Bill, if you don't mind putting that, that slide up there. We're called out to be holy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's read these verses together and see how fast we can move through this and be thorough. 1 Peter chapter 1, start at verse 1. We want to deal a little bit with some of the context if we can. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the full foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. We reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. 
Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, <clears throat> the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what, for what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indication when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Then he uses that big word, that big biblical word, therefore, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but also, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gift, again, of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the, the Holy Spirit, who he sent when he went home, that lives in us and helps us to understand Scripture and helps us to live out Scripture. And Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to get a better grasp of what this passage talks about and in practice be able to live it out. So Father, we just ask that you would work this morning your word and your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, verses 15 and 16. But as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. And then it says, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. First thing we want to look at is this. Positionally, where do we look like as Christians once we're saved? Because this isn't talking about this, that type of holiness. This is talking about a practical holiness. <laughs> Positionally, we are called out, and we are 100% righteous and set apart in the eternal life. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you are truly saved, you've been born again, that spirit has been made alive, you are 100% righteous as far as God is concerned for salvation. Everybody agree with that? Yeah. Go back to verses, the first couple of verses. Let me just walk through what he says in these verses because it's very important for us to understand. He says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who were these a reference to? These were a reference to churches in that Asia Minor area. Okay? Like, like First Baptist Church of Hudson. If, if we were on that list, it would say Hudson. He's writing to Christians. Okay? Just like James was writing to Christians in his, in his letter. And you'll see a lot of some of the words as we get going here that are similar to what James has said. But he uses in verse 2 uh, these words. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. What does that talk about? That talks about the fact that God, before time started, has already worked out your salvation. And if God is in that position of doing that, we are 100% righteous before God positionally. 
He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then it says, in sanctification of the Spirit, and for, the, and for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, talking about the fact that you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you've been under his blood and the work that it did, and the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Is what he's talking about there. Positionally, if you were to die today, no matter if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, no matter how you act right now, will you go to heaven or hell? Heaven. You better say heaven. You better say heaven. Yes, it's heaven. Right? This is talking about the part that, that God is part of. God is the one securing your salvation. Not you. Not your works. All right, so positionally, we're 100% righteous. Practically, and this is where we're going to go today. Now, practically, and actually, yeah, practically, we are called out to live a pattern of life that is separate from the world. Now, listen, probably what we're going to talk about in the next couple of minutes is going to stomp on some toes. All right, so wiggle your toes a little bit, get them ready, because mine got stomped on. All right, this is pretty black and white, what, what Peter says here. Because practically, we're called to live out a pattern of life separate from the world. And then the question is, why? Well, if you look at verse 16, what's the reason that Peter gives? He says, because what? Because... Be holy for what? I am holy. Who's that? Who's Peter references? Whose words are they? They're God's words. What's the reason we're called out to live differently than the rest of the world? Because God says so. Because God says so. Again, this goes back to what the Lord, what we talked about last week. Isaiah, when he was confronted with the greatness of God, he without hesitation recognized that he was a sinner. And listen, I got saved a long time ago. A long time ago. When I was a little kid. And it's taken a lot of years of understanding of just how great God is. Because our mind doesn't fully comprehend all those things. And some of it is maturity because we don't get in the Word as much as we should. But as we recognize who God is and how great He is above us and how, how different He is, we understand that we are a mess. As individuals. That's not bad news because God gives us the ability to change some of those things. Again, in Isaiah 6:1, in the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, he saw God's position over everything. He saw God sitting on the throne. He's the one that's in control. And he saw the one who was victorious over all things. And Isaiah's response was, again, not one of arrogance, but of true humility. We can have false humility. I can walk up to you and say, hey, I want to be your servant. I want to be, I, you know, I, I really, you know, and I can act humble, but in my mind and my heart, I can still be an arrogant jerk. What Isaiah was experiencing in that passage and what Peter's going to call us to do or has called us to do is to truly humble ourselves. That response again was, woe is me for I'm undone. He recognized his sin. 
But it didn't stop there. As God asked that question, who shall I send and who will go for me? His response was not a question of should I or shouldn't I. His response was what? Here I am. Send me. Send me. Positionally we're set apart in that we are made alive who were dead. We have been redeemed, which is brought back from the kingdom of Satan. We are at peace with God through our propitiator, which is Jesus, who we were once enemies with. We are children of God who were once children of the devil. We are justified, those who were condemned by the law. That transaction is complete and can never be undone. Again, if you go back to the verses here at the beginning, it says that we are begotten in verse 5, or I can't see, my eyes are messed up. Verse 3, that looks like a 5, but in verse 3 it says that he has begotten us again to a living hope through our works. Is that what it says? No, it says through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and what is the promise of the future? Look in those verses. Because it doesn't end here. What, what is our hope of the future? We, we've, been, we've, been, we've been called out, but we've been promised an inheritance that is incorruptible. Think about this. Those of you that have, have made your wills out, and you've got somebody's name in there written as an inheritor. All right, before you die and that inheritance is given out, can things change as to what's left in that inheritance? Yeah, you can go bankrupt and it's all gone. It can be corrupted. The inheritance that we have and we are promised can never, never be corrupted. Amen. Incorruptible, it says, and undefiled. And it says it does not fade away. That promise is heaven. That promises glorification for you, where the sin part is put aside and gone. And it says there in those verses, it says that it is reserved in heaven for you who are kept by what? Read those words. Look in your Bible. Kept by what? Kept by what? Look at the, the words. Kept by what? Power of God. Who's keeping your salvation? Is it you? God. If you were to spend time in Romans 8, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. All those verses that deal with election and predestination and, and the, the, the sovereignty of God and all of those things that are in those passages, it's all God doing the work. You had your part, but it was all God. God's the one holding you. God's the one holding you. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's skip over, or actually go to verse 6, which is the next verse. Right? It says what about what these facts? It says what? In this, you do what? Greatly rejoice. Listen, you could be having the worst week of your life. You may have the first worst 10 years of your life. But according to that passage, what? Better things are to come, right? We're to rejoice. How can a Christian have joy when things are falling apart? Because of the promise. Cameron, you had a tough week at camp, didn't you? All right, what got you through it? The Lord. The Lord, the Holy Spirit. The one who promised you that something better is coming. In this, greatly rejoice, he says. 
in this greatly rejoice. It says in there, if you go through that verb, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What does that sound like? We just got out of what book? Book of James. What did the book of James say? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, right? It says, in this greatly rejoice, that now for a little while, need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What were the trials for? This sort of sounds like what we just studied a little while ago, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are trials for again? For our maturity. It's a maturing process. But again, count it all joy in this greatly rejoice. But he goes on, and practically, our pattern of life should be also should also be the same as one who has positionally been called out. We are also practically called out to be like him and to be used for his purposes. We're called out positionally. You are saved. You're guaranteed heaven if your faith is true. And a lot of times we just sort of, uh, a lot of Christians just say, hey, well, I'm saved. I got that taken care of. I got my fire insurance. I can just go on with life. That's not where it stops. That's the beginning. And Peter calls them out that they're not only called out for salvation, they're called out for sanctification, which is to be what? Holy. They're called out to be holy. Again, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in a little bit of your conduct. Say that again. How much of your conduct? All. How much does all mean? All means all, and that's all all can mean. So that means everything about your conduct should represent where you stand positionally. Now, we struggle. God gives us grace in that. And we talked about that when we went through the book of James. But all of our conduct, that means even the things that nobody else can see, our thoughts, our words, our motives, we're called out to practically be holy. Let me go back to some Old Testament verses because that statement that he says, Peter says there, be holy for I am holy, it isn't a new statement. It's one that's been heard from way back. Actually, Genesis chapter 12, when, when God called Abraham to leave, he called him out to be somewhere else. He called him out to be a different person. He called him out to lead a different nation, did he not? It started before that. But Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45 says this, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore... Consecrate yourselves. That's another word for setting yourself apart. Consecrate yourself, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. He says what? You therefore be holy. For I am holy. He called the nation of Israel to be different. Because he was their God. In Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel. And say to them. You shall be holy. For I the Lord your God am holy. 
Leviticus 20, verses 7 through 8. Consecrate. Set yourselves apart for the Lord would be the word there. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies or sets you apart, you. In Numbers 33, verses 51 to 56, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their engraved images and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, to the smaller a smaller. There, there everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those who you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And let me just say, why did you put that verse in there? Because if you understand Israel's, uh, what happened to Israel in the Old Testament, and the church is given that same command to come out from among them, to be holy, Israel never did that, did they? No, they would go into the land and, and they'd feel sorry for the people or they'd have greeting, they'd take the, the loot or the booty, whatever you want to call it, and they would take it and they would take it back into camp. And what did it do? It, it, it polluted their purity. Mm -hmm. And that verse there, it, it, when it talks about them going into the promised land, let me give you a current example of what that verse plays out today. You go to Israel, there's, there's, there's Israel, and then there's another group of people there occupying the land. You know what they're called? Somebody knows. They're the Palestinians. All right? Listen to me. If Israel had done what God had told them way back then, Palestinian whatever would not exist. Do you know who the Palestinians are a, a shoot-off of? The Philistines. Philistines. Israel did not do what they were supposed to. And that, that, look, think about what it says there. They're going to be irritants in your eyes. Think about the, the, the spur in the saddle, so to speak, that that group of people have been to the nation of Israel. God called them to be different. God called them to separate themselves. Like God called them to purity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 11 into chapter 7, it says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And we always take this verse to talk about the fact of marrying an unbeliever. And you can apply it that way, but that's not so much what this whole passage is about. This is about a love for the world, a being yoked to the principles of the world, being yoked to, to the things and the desires of the world. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, he says this. Listen. Come out from among them and be separate. Says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and my daughters. Says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now listen, Peter tells us the same thing in this passage. In verses 13 through 16, he starts out, there's that word therefore again. He said, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lust, as is in your ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, again, one of those words that we always say, if you see the word therefore there, you're supposed to look at what it's there for, and that means you've got to look at the verses before. So everything we've read in that first section of that first chapter is that what that therefore is talking about. Therefore, because you are begotten again to a living hope through faith in Jesus Christ, be holy for I am holy. Therefore, because you have an inheritance that is reserved for you in heaven that is incorruptible, that is undefiled, that will not go away, be holy for I am holy. Therefore, because you are kept by God's power, be holy for I am holy. Get the connection? He uses the word, gird up the loins in your mind. Again, there's a picture there of the people of that time period. We don't wear tunics anymore, so it doesn't really apply to us in that picture sense. But the, they wore tunics, and the men wore tunics. And in order for them to move quickly, in order for them to move efficiently, all right, whether it was in battle or whether it was to get out of the way of something, if they moved with their dress, if you want to call it that, down, what would happen? They'd get entangled and they'd fall. The picture here of girding up the loins of your mind is, is pulling up that tunic. And they used to pull it up and they'd tuck it into their belt all the way around. And then they could move effectively from one place to another. In battle, that was a big deal. But what's Peter saying here? Burn up the loins of your mind. The picture is this. Pull up the loose end of your mind is literally what it means. James would call that person, well, let's see if you remember what we talked about in James. What would James call that person that, 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 that didn't have his mind under control? He'd call him a what? A double-minded man. To pull up the loose end of your mind is not to be double-minded. It's, it's to bring and not allow your mind to be entangled with the affairs of this life in the worldly sense. Is the picture? Until your mind is straightened out, you're thinking like the world and you're thinking like God. There, there's a, there's a, a, a battle there. Romans 12, 2 would have the same type of wording. It says, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of what? 
your mind. Again, the picture is, is when you get saved, the, 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 your body is still under the curse. Everybody agree with that? Anybody here said they're not under the curse? All right, you haven't been sick lately, have you? Right? The body is still under the curse. We won't experience full redemption until we get to heaven, and then that is all taken away. But when you were born again, the spirit inside of you was made alive, the Bible says. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But that new spirit, which has new desires and new thoughts, lives in that decrepit old body, your mind being one of those things that's under the curse. How do we get the outside to match the inside? And you've heard me say this a gazillion times. And I try to pound this to our teens when they're here. They're all at camp. But the point is, is this. How do you get the outside to match the inside? Renew the mind. Renew the mind. Renew the mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Everybody awake? Right, we've, got to, we've got to start to think like God thinks. Disciplined mind means disciplined body. Reject the lies of the world and focus on the truth of who you are. Go back to those verses in the first couple verses. You're chosen by God. All right? you're, you're in the power of his grace. Uh, you, you have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved for you in heaven. Live like that person. Think like that person. Focus on who you are and what God has done and will do in your life. So gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. The, the words there simply are this, to be clothed, clear-headed. Not allowing anything to cloud your thinking. Be focused. Be intentional. Uh, the picture would be simply, the easiest way to describe it would be uh, to be drunk. When you're drunk, if you've never been drunk, you are, you are very lucky. All right? But if you've ever been drunk, you've seen somebody that's drunk, are they clear-headed? Do they think clearly? No. Why do you think they say when people get drunk they have beer muscles? Why? Because they think they're bigger than they are. They're not clear-headed. They're not rational. The Bible says that we're to gird up the loins of our mind and we're to be clear-headed. We're to be focused. We're to be intentional about everything that is involved in our walk. We're not to be intoxicated with the lures and the lies and the things of this world. Let me, let me just throw something out there that might... Step on some more toes. You know, we have this big word that we use in church, though. It's called license and liberty. All right? Let me tell you what liberty really is. Because I hear this all the time. I'm free to do this as long as my conscience is okay with it. I'm going to challenge you on that statement. That is true. If you can consciously, and God doesn't convict you, you're all right. Let me tell you what those verses really talk about. If you read back into Galatians chapter 5, do you know what liberty really is? Liberty is the ability to know right from wrong and choose right. You have the liberty to choose to live right. When you were not saved, you didn't have a choice. You didn't understand any different. You, you, you were ignorant in your words, the Bible says, or in your mind, the Bible says. You, you walked in the lust of the flesh. When we get saved, we have the liberty to live for Jesus. When you weren't saved, you didn't have the liberty to live for Jesus. You didn't know any better. Put that in your 
Not like our Savior. <laughs> <laughs> now think about that. Before you were saved, you didn't know anybody. Walk up and down these streets. These people that walk up and down that are drunk and high and goofed up, they don't know any better. They don't have the liberty to choose what's right. That's what liberty really is. Biblically, you research it, that's exactly what it is. We make it out because we want to be like the world, so we want to get as close as we can. Oh, God doesn't bother me with that. You know, it's all right. My conscience is there. I can do this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Every time you do that, you take a chance of going back and being totally immersed in the world. Sorry, I got on my soapbox. So be sober. Rest your hope fully. Now, because of the great grace we have been shown in salvation, we should live without hesitation for the one who our hope is in. And as we've talked about in James, be living in anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're living with the thought that Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, your mind is going to be over here. Your focus is going to be over here. The things and your treasures are going to be over here. But when we live on both sides of the fence, we've got to hang on to this because we think we're going to be here a little longer than we're going to be. And, and it sort of seems to, seems to captivate us. Jesus could come back at any moment. What's here stays here. That includes the, children, the souls of your children that don't know Jesus as your Savior. That should rock the world. Rest your hope fully. Grace that is to be brought to you. This is future grace. It is grace that will be given in our glorification, which happens when? When we're with Jesus. And then he says this, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Living for Jesus is a choice for a Christian. We have a choice. Just like we had a choice in salvation, we have a choice to live for Jesus. I can live and waste my whole entire life for me. And then when I stand before Jesus, and I'm uh, not judged, but I'm rewarded or not rewarded for what I did in my life, I'm going to have nothing to give for him, and I'm going to say, Lord, I'm sorry. If you live that way, you'll be one of those, the Bible says, gets in there with the smell of smoke on your back. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Living for Jesus is a choice. And Peter says, don't live like you used to when you didn't know any better. Again, liberty is liberty of knowing this versus that. He goes on, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Why is that all important? You say, what difference does it make if I, as one person out of this church, live my life in a way that's opposite? Peter goes on. Go to chapter 2. I just want to touch on these verses very quickly. Because, because there is, there is a, a, a consequence when we don't live according to God. Number one, it could be personal judgment. We're going to take communion here. And in the, in the, the, the last verses of what... Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that you judge yourself so that you don't have to be judged. 
And we're supposed to be pure and clean and holy for Jesus because if we don't and we take communion in an unworthy way, judgment could come upon us. Whether that be church discipline, whether that be the fact that God brings illness, whether that be a death on, or a sin unto death. We talked about that several weeks ago. But Peter in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, says this. And here's the reason, one of the reasons. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, and just stop right there. If I were to refer to you as a sojourner, does that talk about somebody who's rooted and planted in one place? Or a pilgrim? No. A sojourner is what? They're in journey to somewhere else. I don't know if that's the right definition or not, but that's the picture. A sojourner, it, it doesn't belong here. They're headed somewhere else. A pilgrim, the pilgrims that came over here, they came from England, and they were headed here to find a better place, right? A sojourner is not, is, is not, so when he refers to these people, he's saying, listen, this isn't your home. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, and I stand before you in, in talking to me too. I beg you as those who don't belong in this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm my something, 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 somewhere beyond the blue. All right. Here's the, here's the, here's the thing. A sojourner doesn't have his feet planted in one spot. Peter's saying, listen, we shouldn't have our feet planted there either. He goes on. My beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, was war against your soul. Then it says this, having your conduct honorable among Gentiles. That's talking about those that aren't saved, those that weren't like them. Honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. <coughs> Think about that. Why is Peter what is Peter saying here? He's saying, listen, make sure your testimony, your life, is not represented by those fleshly lusts. It's represented by the character, the holy character of God. Again, we've talked about this before. We, when it says to bring honor and glory to God, it means this. When people look at you, they see not you. They see the character of God reflected out. And Peter's saying here, you should live in a way that when you go out there, that your conduct, that there could be nothing that accuses you of living outside of the, the will of God. Why? By your good works, which they observe, what's it say? Glorify God. Listen, we, just as Israel was in the Old Testament, they were entrusted in a stewardship, and I've said this, and I'll repeat it every Sunday if I have to. They were entrusted with the glory of God. They were to be a city set on a hill. They were to be that one that, that as the world looked on, they saw that this, this nation was different. And the, the, the thing that it pointed to wasn't them. The thing that it pointed to was the God that they worshipped. 
It was his greatness. Because as they looked at them, they said, man, he, they're different. We are trusted with the same thing as the body of Christ in the New Testament. You're trusted, entrusted with a stewardship of two things, the, the glory of God and the gospel. And how you live your life matters because you're not, you, you may go out into the woods and nobody, you may go off for 20 years like the guy, everybody ever watched that, that thing up in the middle, that guy that went into Alaska and he lived up there did a documentary of himself for all those years. Remember watching that? He was out in the middle of nowhere. He was off the grid. Nobody saw him. He could have done anything he wanted. But you know what? There was 